Are you ready for some nosy bitches? Because this is about to get explicit. Hey, bitches. Hey, friends. Hey, Carla. Michael. How you doing? I'm doing pretty good. We talked about all this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So for everybody else, we're recording back-to-back episodes so that we can we can kind of build up a library. So this this sounds like a new podcast to us, but we just finished the last one. So <laughs> how's your week been? Yeah. All shenanigans. <laughs> So uh, I'll just caveat this story recovering Andrew Cunanan. And there's been a debate whether or not he was a serial killer or a spree killer and what the difference is. I was going to say, well, I don't know that I know what I, the difference yeah, is. I don't know that there is much of a difference, but I really do believe in my mind he was more of a spree killer. So essentially like he killed kind of back to back rather than had a specific type. Though There is some distinction in there. I normally don't like to cover these type of – because one is there's all of this popularity around serial killers. Like we've talked about like Ted Bundy and uh, Jeffrey Dahmer that recently came out with Netflix. They just have so much like admiration and coverage that it's just not something I, I'd love to do. But I do think that there's a few exceptions. And I think like we talked about probably at one point in time we'll cover Dahmer. And I think at some point in time, maybe even Bundy, because Bundy was really like what got me interested in true crime to begin with. And it really had to do with the psychology of a person like that. Yes. I think at its core was the manipulation piece. How someone could be so manipulative. Because in any case, in any time something's covered, you want to ask yourself, like, how did the person who was killed get put in that position? That's right. Right? And I think Andrew Con. Kunanen. It's either Kunanen or Kunanen, but honestly, if I'm being honest, I really don't care if I'm pronouncing his name right. So, listeners, please just forgive me. Do not rage on us about my mispronunciation around his name. I'm going to call him Andrew for the most part. But partly is because I truly don't give a shit whether or not. He doesn't deserve for anyone to get his name right. He's definitely super narcissistic. Very, very manipulative. Especially within some of the the first people that kind of surround him and and his first two murders, the way that they were very easily manipulated by him and how tragic that was for them. It it was interesting. I watched a show, it's American True Crime Story, and the first season they covered OJ, which I, I thought was great. I think anytime you listen to a story that you kind of grew up with, go and research it as an adult. Because even like the OJ case, I remember there was so much about that that I did not remember correctly. I felt that way with John Bonet when yes. I did that. I was like, I knew about this. It was so popular, but man. Lorena Bobbitt. Yes. I think is the easy one. But the second season was on the murder of Gianni Versace. Yeah. And while it is the murder of Gianni Versace, there was a spree of killings and people that died before it got to him. And it was this, this same person, Andrew, that did it. So this is the twisted tell of Andrew Kanan. He really did think that he was bigger and more special than he really was. And instead of working hard to actually be something special, he manipulated. He took advantage of people to attain what he wanted. But like us all, he was born and grew up. 
He was born August 31st, 1969 in National City, California. His parents were Pete Cunanan and Mary Ann. His dad was Filipino-American and his mom was Italian-American. His dad spent time in the Navy and then worked as a stockbroker. So Andrew ended up going to a private day school in California. There he met his best friend, Elizabeth Coates. His friends growing up would describe him as very talkative. He was very bright. He had a high IQ. As Andrew grew older, he would begin to tell stories that Andrew would just lie all the time. And it wasn't even little lies. It was big lies about his family, about his personal life. I'll go aside just a little bit. I am willing to put money on that this is probably the early signs of some type of personality or mental disorder. I know and grew up with a person who was very intelligent, very talkative, and not in high school though, but when he was much younger, like adolescence, like six or seven, he would tell these huge tall tales. And people would kind of think it was cute or funny. Like he would say that um, his dad built robots or something like that. Well, this is in the late... 80s, early 90s, his dad was not building robots. It's completely false. But as he got older, and in his late teen years, we started to see signs of bipolar. And we were very aware of what the signs were. And so immediately began to seek help for him and get him diagnosed and get him treated. But I would just guess that these are the early signs of Andrew's personality or mental. And in fact, like psychologists looking back, would say that Andrew suffered from an antisocial personality disorder. So I had to go look it up because to me, antisocial personality disorder did not mean what I thought it meant. Yeah. For me, that means you would just like avoid people. Right. right? Like like agoraphobic or something like that. Yeah. But this disorder is actually described as someone that has like lack of empathy and no remorse. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it was definitely way different than what I thought it was going to be. Yeah. So Andrew came out in high school, and he began to seek out older, wealthy men. So it would still be a few years before he came out to his family, but his friends knew that he was gay. Um, He graduated in 1987. It's a good year. Right? It's a great year. And he went to the University of California and studied history. During this time in his life, things began to get a little bit rocky for Andrew. His dad actually abandoned their family and fled and went back to the Philippines. It had been discovered that he was involved with embezzlement. And I don't think I said it, but Andrew was one of, he was the youngest of four children. Okay. So that's a big family to be left with. Now, Andrew's in college, so you can imagine that his parents are a little bit, his his siblings are older than them. So they're adults, probably not well-established adults, but they're adults. But this would leave his mom single and alone. And no children really to take care of. I think that became kind of rough family life for him. Yeah. That same year, Andrew's mother was deeply religious. And she did find out that Andrew was gay. And they ended up having a huge argument about it. And Andrew was physical with her and actually dislocated her shoulder. Oh, my God. That's part of why people would talk about that he had no no remorse. He did not feel remorseful or empathetic to what he had done for his mom. Like, It was her fault that this argument had started and she essentially caused what happened. So by 1989, so just two years after he started, he would drop out of college, move in with his friend Liz, 
who lived in the Castro district of San Francisco with her boyfriend, Phil Morell. I guess the Castro district was, especially in the 80s, was the highlight of the gay community. He continued to date older, wealthy men from San Fran, San Diego, even going as far as Arizona to meet these men. Allegedly, Andrew began selling and I would bet doing drugs. Again, it's the late 80s, early 90s. So cocaine was very prominent in the nightclub scene. He also had many aliases that he liked to use. Again, like here is this very highly intelligent person who already loved to lie. So you can imagine that not only was he changing his name, he was probably changing his whole personality. Created these big stories, different names that he was going by. And he really felt like he could be anyone and would lead people to believe whatever story he had told. We were talking about this earlier in a different context, but this almost reminds me of Catch Me If You Can. Yeah. Right? Like just becoming this whole other person. In some ways that's sounding fascinating, but I'll be interested to see how this turns. Yeah, like as a story, like a character like that is super fascinating. I think, like, in my real life, I don't want anything to do with someone like oh, that. Oh, God, no. Yeah, it's no, so... It's fascinating to, like, study, but no, right. I don't want that in my life. <laughs> no, I don't have time for that level Thank of drama. You. In 1995, he is dating David Madsen, who is an architect from Minneapolis, who is visiting a bar. He's really all over, my goodness. Yeah, well, if you think San Francisco is a is a hub That's at this true. point. So and you can so, really get anywhere. Yeah. yeah. He had come from Minneapolis. He was visiting a bar there. And they dated for about five months before breaking up. Madsen would tell people that there was just something shady about Andrew. In September of 96, he was dating this older man named Norman Blanchard. And I think that he was probably dating Norman while dating other people. So I don't think that they were exclusive. Okay. So Blanchard had been supporting Andrew, paying a majority of his bills. When they split, Andrew maxed out all of his credit cards, started doing and dealing drugs again. And friends would later say that Andrew appeared to be spiraling and was doing drugs, including painkillers, drinking all the time, drinking very heavily. I listened or watched something later that talked about possibly even doing meth at this time. I can definitely see as he gets later on that there's probably some type of meth or some type of drug like that involved. I want to talk about a couple of people who are close to Andrew. So, of course, his friend Liz and her boyfriend Phil. But he also had another friend named Jeff Trail. So Jeff was a former Navy officer who was working for a propane company. I think he was like a district manager for this propane company after getting out of the military. Jeff lived in Minneapolis and was very close to Andrew, and it seemed as though both Andrew and his friend Jeff and David Madsen would frequent both San Francisco and Minneapolis pretty frequently. And I don't think that Jeff and David knew each other before Andrew. So I think Andrew was the missing piece, and they just both happened to be in Minneapolis. I was not aware that that many gay men from Minneapolis traveled to San Francisco, but here we go. That's right. But then also, not sure if there was that much to do in Minneapolis at the time. So in the 90s, that's where gay men went. But they're all running in the same circle. In late April of 1997, Andrew is supposed to be coming to visit Trail. So Trail tells his sister that, of course, Andrew is coming to visit, that he really wasn't looking forward to it, and nor did he really want him to come. You could almost tell that Jeff and David were kind of over Andrew. But it didn't seem that Andrew was really over them. And I don't think that Jeff and Andrew were having a romantic relationship. I feel like they really were friends. Where, of course, David and him had had this romantic relationship. 
And I feel like I have to overly explain this trio because like as I was reading about it and even though I had watched series about it, I still was getting them confused in my head of how they kind of were pieced together. For some reason, they had gotten into some type of argument, but Jeff did not tell his sister like what the details were of that argument. And it really was kind of unclear of what happened, but Jeff just did not really want Andrew coming and he was not looking forward to that visit. So the reasons or motives of what happened the next few days in April is very unclear. It once was rumored that Andrew was HIV positive, but later was found out to not be true. Um, due to his autopsy. But that doesn't mean that Andrew didn't know this to be true. So he had visited and spoken with an AIDS counselor many times in this time frame leading up to April. He actually made comments like once he found out who did this to him, he would get them. The counselor never performed a test on him, nor did he like confirm any test types. He was literally just there to like counsel and talk with him. But and somehow Andrew walked away with this impression that he had it. Yeah. So it, it was kind of very confusing. And again, it, it's it's kind of a rumor. And I think people are trying to understand, like, why he might do what he does. Yeah. And so we don't really understand. So April 25th of 1997, Andrew's broke. He's maxed out all of his credit cards. In fact, he had to ask for a credit extension in order to pay for his plane ticket to Minneapolis. So he, so, he shows up in Minnesota First, he goes to see his ex-boyfriend, David Madsen. They go to dinner, and then they go out to a local gay club. The next day, April 26, he stays at Jeff's empty apartment. Jeff was out of town with his boyfriend. At the empty apartment, Andrew stole Jeff's gun out of his apartment. Then Andrew takes all of his own luggage and this newly acquired gun, and he returns to David Madsen's apartment. Later, Jeff and his boyfriend returned to his apartment saw that Andrew had left, realized, I don't even know, actually, I say that. Let me go back. I don't know that they realized that he had taken the gun. I was going to say, how would they even know? Yeah, look probably for that, didn't right? go look for it. Yeah. But they realized that Andrew had left and wasn't there. So they kind of, they discussed the situation and Jeff really felt like he needed to have an important chat with Andrew. Yeah. Andrew called Jeff to come over to David's apartment. So Jeff leaves and goes over to see Andrew, who again is at David's apartment. That evening, Andrew would kill Jeff. Sometime after Jeff entered the apartment, there was an argument heard by the neighbors that they would later tell the police. Andrew would kill Jeff in a very brutal and rage-filled attack. He didn't even use the gun. He attacked him 27 times with a claw hammer. He would then put Jeff's body in a duffel bag, which actually is... Andrew's duffel bag that like says his name on it and wrap him in a carpet that David had in his apartment. He literally did not attempt to clean or hide his identity at all in this connection. And like the police would later recognize that this level of like not trying to hide things that they knew that this would not be his last murder. So I think that's when they started to identify that, that he was on some type of a spree murder and that there would probably be other people who would get caught up in the crossfire. Jeff's watch stopped at 9.55 p.m. So even though his body would not be found for two or more days, the police would be able to tell when Jeff had died because of the fact that the watch had stopped because of just the brutality of the murder. I mean, dear God. Yeah, it's it, just crazy that he steals that gun. And doesn't even use it. Yeah, it's just, it is well, very ironic. the motivation, like what? Yeah, it's it, it, like it 
it has to be some sort of in the throes of mental illness, right? Like no rational person, even if you're mad at someone, what could cause someone to do that? Yeah. And so let me just tell you a little bit about Jeff Trail. So he was a decorated Gulf War veteran. I think he was like 33. He was very loved by his family and his friends. They described him as a very compassionate, fun-loving, very upbeat man. His father said that he was always trying to help someone out and even went out of his way to help people. His sister would later say that Jeff was never in a relationship with Andrew. They wanted to make that very clear that while he was gay, he was never in a relationship with Andrew. But Andrew almost seemed to have a very unhealthy obsession with him almost. And so she talks about how, like, Jeff got his hair cut, Andrew had to get his hair cut. If Jeff grew a goatee, Andrew had to go get a goatee. If Jeff went and got some type of hat, Andrew had to go get a hat. So, like, there was this almost, like, one-upping him. Yeah. And, again, he was very successful. He was a naval officer. And then he was working pretty high up in this propane company. And if you think that Andrew wanted these, like, older, wealthy men – but he just did not have the drive to actually go be successful himself. Like never once did I find out like what Andrew really did as a career. Yeah. He just was jellyfishing his way along in life. Just a little bit about Jeff. So of course he is in someone else's apartment and like what happens next, we really don't have any, like it's anyone's guess. What we do know is that at some point David Madsen does return to his apartment and discovered that Andrew either had killed Jeff or was in the act of killing Jeff. Andrew holds him hostage, most likely, using Jeff's gun as leverage. They are seen on April 29th, so this is like two days later, walking David's dog. And neighbors saw both men in the, in the elevator, either on May 1st or on May 2nd. It's hard to tell which day they actually left. Andrew and David do leave the apartment for good. So David's work notices his absence and, of course, worried for his health, they immediately call for a welfare check. And that's when the police break in and discover Jeff's body there in the duffel bag and then wrapped up in the rug. They weren't sure at that point if David was also involved in the murder, but David's family were adamant that he would have never had anything to do with this and that Andrew had to be holding him hostage. And they were really fearful for his life. But if, Understandably. Right. They have a relationship with David. So they know him and they know what kind of a person he is. Obviously, the police are just following the clues. And as far as they can tell, they're like, oh, well, people saw him. He wasn't trying to, like, run for his life. But sometimes situations like this are, are bigger than that. You almost think about, like, Stockholm. And his family was right to worry. On May 1st, Andrew and David were spotted eating lunch just north of Minneapolis. The next morning... David's body would be found on the shore of Rush Lake. He had been shot six times in the head. The gun, of course, was assumed to be Jeff Trails. So here's an interesting note. Jeff actually purchased the gun because he was so worried about Andrew. Remember him telling his sister that I'm fearful and he felt that this would help protect him and kind of like this growing worry about Andrew. And then ironically. Ironically, right. That is what... I mean, of course, that's not what got him killed, The but he wouldn't have had it. That's right. He went, but then that's what ends up killing David. Many people have speculated, what were those days like between Andrew and David? So because I think we're thinking of maybe a two or three, possibly even four days that they were together. Yeah. 
and, you know, really trying to find out, like, why didn't Dave leave? So there's an article by Martha Orth, who writes for the Vanity Fair, and she talks about that Madsen was a peacemaker who avoided confrontation and really wanted to save people. And these types of personality traits may also explain why Madsen acted the way that he did. I think it's probably safe to say that Madsen probably believed at some point that maybe Andrew would not kill him or that he could save himself. And he was probably trying to figure out how to get away when Andrew did kill him. Yeah, I almost read the opposite. Like that to me, if I've just walked in to see either inaction or even just the remains of a murder that brutal 26 times with a clawed hammer, that person is capable of anything. And if that person has said, if you do not cooperate with me, I'm going to do the same thing to you, I believe them. Right. If I'm in his situation. So some of this really might be they had already had a frank conversation. And to your to the point about the peacemaker part, at least, maybe just trying to, I need to hold this together long enough to figure something out. Yeah. Dear God. I know. I, I can't, can't even. even ima- no, I, I honestly, I can't either. <laughs> that is so terrifying. And so a little bit about David Madsen, like just kind of like Jeff, that his family and friends would say like what a joy he was. And that he was peaceful. He was very charismatic. After his death, his coworkers put together a memorial video of him, like from the office and different videos that they had collected. I guess they really just wanted to talk about him and just what an amazing smile he had and what a joy he was and like how much he meant to them. They wanted to do something nice for his parents to show like what an impact on his life because they lost him so tragically. These guys were 28 and 33. Just, I mean, honestly, like young still. And luckily had kind of lived some of their lives and stuff, but they they still had the potential to, to live many more years, 50 more years even. Yeah. And so it, it was just a tragic short end to their lives. And the worst part is that Andrew was not done yet. Like he was still on this rampage. Andrew would leave Minneapolis and he would drive to Chicago. In Chicago, the details of why Andrew did what he did still are never figured out. And there have been a lot of speculations based on Andrew's desire for wealthy older men, but there's really never been anything definitive. And even the police believe that his next crime was a crime of opportunity. So at some point on May 4th, Andrew meets Lee Miglin. He's an older business tycoon who is very wealthy. He enters Lee's home and brutally murders him. The police would find that not only had he killed him, but he had brutally tortured him. So Miglin's body was found in the garage of his Chicago home. The home is located in what they call like the Gold Coast of Chicago. So it's a very, it's referenced as like a very wealthy, very affluent section of Chicago. He had been bound at the wrists. His head was bound with tape. They said that like only a breathing space was there in between the tape. So he clearly did not want him to suffocate. He wanted to torture him. He had been tortured with a saw, a screwdriver. His ribs had been broken. He had been beaten, stabbed. His throat had been slashed with a gardener's bow saw. They also talked about that they had, he had put like either pornography or like magazines or something around him. And I believe that he had put him in some type of like G-string underwear too. It really seemed like there was so much rage for this person that you don't know. And you almost could believe that 
Maybe it had to do with like Andrew's obsession with wealth and power control and wanting to make this person feel powerless. And then maybe even with his own sexuality is also to to put this. So it, it's a really interesting thing that what I mean, I shouldn't say that because I mean, it's just absolutely horrible. But like it is it is we just yeah. don't know like why he did that. You can't help but be curious about it. And it's it, it again sounds so weird to say anything positive about it but it's one of the things reasons i'm fascinated with true crime is the psychology of it how does a person get to that state how can you get that angry and this is starting to as i'm hearing this it makes sense why there's speculative speculation around just motive in general like the aids thing like any theory that someone can even think of to try to wrap their heads around what could cause so much rage. Right. It definitely feels like I think you hit on something with the control. I can see a situation where it's like the the other person always does have control when you're getting in relationships with that kind of motive. Like right. if you're if you're getting into the relationship to kind of be the sugar baby, right. then you've got to be willing to understand you're in the the passenger seat and not the driver's seat there, but maybe he grew to resent that. I don't know. Yeah, and you have to think like a year or so before he'd been dating Norman Blanchard, yeah. who was very he was a much older man and probably close to the age of Lee Miglin and very wealthy, was paying all of his bills, and when they broke up, like cut that off. Yeah. Like he didn't have that anymore. And so you almost wonder, was Lee Miglin a represent a rep- Oh, that's exactly know, what it feels like is some sort of avatar for him, you yeah. know? And just this poor gentleman though. Can you imagine you're just in your you're in your 70s. Yes. Just, I do want to say a little bit about, I tried to find background information of each of his victims because they were whole people. That's before, right, they were. You know, these are just one, while it's a truly horrific moment, it's just one moment of their life. So a little bit about Lee. He was born July 12th, 1924. He was born to a big family of seven children. His dad was an immigrant from Czech Republic and his family was raised in a very modest Catholic family. Lee Miglin was an extremely hard worker. He started out as a door-to-door salesman and then later became a broker. He would soon become a real estate developer. They talked about one of the articles that I read that he actually was one of the initial investors in like business parks, which of course became like bigger and larger. Yeah. But he, in his early 30s, he would actually become like a real estate tycoon. And then later in his early 30s, he would marry... Marilyn Klekla, and together they would build an empire and two separate empires. Actually, she was an incredibly successful um, makeup and perfume businesswoman. She would be known on the Home Shopping Network as the Queen of Makeovers. They had two children and really just had a great, bright life together. And he he was older; he was about seventy years old at this point in time. He had two children, and um, his children would go on to reiterate over the years. In fact, just a few years ago, when the show covered um, the murder of their father, to say again that like his father was not leading, because there's some speculation that maybe Andrew had met him, and they were having a secret rendezvous. Oh, so thinking some sort of double life. Right, yeah. That because the wife was out of town too so he was at home alone and that they were having some type of secret life and he said my dad was not a closeted gay man that he did not know andrew 
And actually, the FBI went as far as to investigate the relationship, probably just as part of their investigation. Oh, you investigation. would almost have to. Yeah. It might, again, help better understand motive. Right? right. Yeah. And I think it's, and so it was determined that there was no connection to them. Now, whether or not, like, they met on the street in passing. It's possible. Right. But, I mean, that's one of those things where it's, like, the simplest solution is usually the right one. And we're not exactly seeing rational behavior from this guy before. So why, like, why limit it in that way and say that he had to have known him? No, he doesn't. It really could be, just like you and I were saying, a a representation of another gentleman or this collection of people he felt like had harmed him in some way. Well, and this is the late 90s. Like, the other thing is, if Lee Miglin was living the secret life... He wasn't living that secret life alone. Yeah. You think that other people over the years, now, you know, almost 20 years later, that somebody would have stepped out and said something that like, oh, I had secret relationships with, with him. That just hasn't come it's out. It's such a good point, right? Like if, if someone is doing that, this isn't the only person they've ever done it with, right? right? So no, it's such a good point. So there's a little bit at, about Lee Miglin. So after Lee Miglin, it said that Andrew went inside the house, made himself a sandwich, stole cash, stole his car, and after a rest, left Chicago and head to New Jersey. Like, he's just sick. Like, who who brutally tortures this person? Oh, I'm hungry now. Goes inside and has a fucking ham sandwich. Fuck. I, I just... So was his... Was this gentleman... Was it Lee Miglin? Was his wife home? No, out of town. But can you imagine coming home? To, like, Mm-mm. dear God. Or hopefully they tried to contact her before. I just, like, I had a hard time when I opened up the coop to dead chickens. Yeah, I can't, I can't even, even imagine. No, it would just, absolutely, it would. You don't recover from that. No, like, And to see it done in that way, like, just. And, uh, well, and like I say, like, he's in his 70s, so, like, he is an older gentleman. But, like, his wife, I was reading, like, she just passed last year. So, like, here they could have had 20 more years together. That's right. You know, so, like, he missed out on life. And it, that's just sad. So he goes from Chicago to New Jersey. And he, because he's still Lee Miglin's car. And in New Jersey, he would kill again. He found a cemetery worker, William Reese, who he shot, stole his Chevy pickup truck, and then would head to Florida. What's sad is there's almost nothing on William Reese that I can find. He was 45. He was married to Rebecca. And there's really like nothing else about his background that I can find. I, I tried multiple sources. Um, I do know that his wife was the one who found him. She, he didn't come home from work. And she went there to his work and walked in and had found that he was shot and that his car had been stolen. And really at this point, the police, they kind of were already on high alert from Chicago but now they now it is a national alert. And so the FBI, are, of course, are now involved because you're, you're crossing lots of state lines and, and you don't know where he's going. And now, like, any illusion of a pattern is gone. Right. Because now he just murdered it, air quotes, nobody, when he's usually going after these affluent men and yeah. everything. They really believe, like, while they believe that Lee Miglin was an opportunity, this was definitely an opportunity. 1,000%. And he literally just shot him and, and hit the road. Yeah. I mean, one th- honestly, thank God for yes. this guy. At least he didn't have to die as brutally. I, God. Yeah, because of what he did to Lee Miglin was just awful. Really, at this point, the FBI, the police, they're working together, and they put him on the most wanted list. 
So the story of his killing spree really became national news at this point. Yeah. He was even featured on America's Most Wanted a few times during that month. So right before the first airing of America's Most Wanted, Andrew had made it down to Miami and he's staying at, it's called the Normandy Plaza. You could stay there for $29 a night. Oh, I'm sure, wow. I'm sure this it is, is. This is classy yeah, shit right here. I'm sure this is super classy hotel. Even for 1997, uh, $29 is nothing. <laughs> that's right. But he essentially was hiding in plain sight. So at this point, he's dumped the car and he's just walking around Miami Beach. And he even goes to a pawn shop and is pawning things that he had stolen from Lee Miglin's house. Even though he knows that pawn shops are always checked by police. Like that's a thing every week, every month, their records are are pushed through the police department. So he really just didn't care. Like he was kind of brazen about it at this point. He checks out of his hotel on July 14th. And it's not known where he stayed the night or if he stayed anywhere. I mean, it's Miami Beach. You could just sleep on the beach or in a park. There's a pretty big homeless community there too at that point. On July 15th at 8.45 in the morning, Andrew walks up and confronts none other than Gianni Versace on the steps of his Miami Beach front mansion. Like, huge. If if you haven't ever seen the Versace mansion, you should go look it up. One of the reasons I've seen it in person is, you know, I'm obsessed with like all things Bravo. And the Real Housewives of Miami rented out the Versace mansion for a bachelorette party. I'm sorry we did not get you the Versace mansion for the bachelorette party. <laughs> I was going to say, I feel slighted, <laughs> yeah. Carla. I just feel like they're rocking at a different, a different <laughs> income a different, bracket. That's I think than so. I am. It's at. a different stratosphere. Yeah, that's fine. But so I got to see it, you know, on TV, not in person. But it's gorgeous, and it's it's a hundred percent what you think Versace's beach house mansion would look like. And it's interesting because there's like a garden and a fence, and you're right there on Miami Beach, and there is a big, pretty walkway in the Hollywood Hills. You think that you're so far away from a superstar's, like, front house. Yeah. But this person lived right off the beach, and you kind of had easy access to it. And while, like, to me, like, Gianni Versace is very famous, I guess it's probably not the same as, like, a Taylor Swift or... It would be different. face recognition. Yeah, it's There just would different. be name recognition, but I don't know... I mean, now we do, because we, we know because of this murder, it made it even more famous, but... I don't know that most people just like walk up and be like, oh, you're yeah. Giovanni Versace. Yeah. Like, I don't, yeah. Gianni was returning from the newsstand, which he normally would send his assistant to do. But this morning he had decided to walk to the newsstand himself. He would go and, you know, pick up all the fashion magazines. It just reminds me of like a different time. Reminds me of like Sex in the City when she goes to the little street market and she's like, oh, let me pick out these magazines. That's essentially what he was doing. And he is literally steps from his house. He is steps from freedom. And Andrew just walks up and shoots him twice. And there was a passerby that saw it, witnessed it, and chased Andrew. But he dodged into this parking garage and the guy lost him. But of course, then the manhunt begins again because now we know where he's at. He doesn't have a car at this point. He still has that gun. It's still the same gun that he stole from Jeff Trail. On July 23rd, so eight days later, a caretaker of a luxurious houseboat, it must be like a rental, realizes that someone is at that house and they call the police. The police go to the houseboat and they think they have surrounded Andrew Kanan 
And they have a standoff for five hours. Jeez. Eventually they go in. And when they go in, they realize that he had killed himself before they had even showed up. That he'd been dead for probably as soon as he realized that he was, it was very in, imminent that he was about to be caught. He killed himself. He did not leave a note. He left like nothing as far as why he did this or the letter to his mom or anything. And his parents are interesting characters. There are some things about his mom. Of course, his mom was very deeply religious. Andrew was the baby. And there's been some weird interviews with her. His dad is even stranger. So there's an interview with his dad that they like chase him down until this broke down shoddy house in the Philippines. His dad is still on the run from the embezzlement charges, but they're wanting to find out about his son. And he makes comments about how his son's not gay. And I'm like, what? Your son killed all these people and that's what you're concerned about? Well, you're adamant that your son isn't gay? He was gay. Well, and I just, one of the thoughts that came to my mind when we were talking about the brutality of the murders was, you know, we were making proxies or avatars to his former lovers, but it does make me wonder, was there abuse at home? Yeah. I suspected the dad. And then when the dad's so adamant about something like that, it just makes me wonder what his life was like growing up with that household. His remains were sent home and his, his mom got to bury him. This is probably just my very morbid cold thing. We didn't have to go through a court case. We didn't have to spend millions of dollars on. So maybe it was the right move, but it's just also crazy that we don't know what happened. There's so much of it. And it is interesting in that show, in that true crime, because obviously it's a dramas- dramatization, but where the first season that they did on the OJ trial is filled with facts because they know a lot of, they know the players, they know, they've heard about conversations. This, that season with Andrew Kanan, they're making up and theorizing so much of it. It is a good story. Like it does help like, oh, maybe this is what happened. But there's so little that we actually know about what happened because the only people that know are dead. I'm sure most of you know about Gianni Versace. He was brilliant. He also had a lot of things that happened in his life too. He was born December 2nd, 1946. And he grew up with his older brother, Santo, his younger sister, Donatella Versace. She's still pretty famous. His sister has two children. I know her daughter is Allegra. And he loved his niece and nephew very, very much. Family was really, really important to him. Um, Of course, he would go on to be this very famous Italian fashion designer. He was a businessman. Versace has everything, accessories, fragrances, makeup, home furnishing, clothes. His fashion empire, part of it was like these really like vivid colors, these bold prints, these kind of sexy cuts. He also was the one that did like the chain mail. That was like his one of his big kind of famous pieces. He believed in like being brazen and bold. There's a reference that Giorgio Armani says that Armani dresses the wife and Versace dresses the the mistress. Um, (laughs) But his company really was like raised around his sister, who was his vice president. His older brother was the president of the company. And of course, he was the creative mindset part of it. The other thing that's really important to say, too, is that Versace met his partner, Antonio and I, I don't know if it's DeMasso, um, I'm probably butchering his last name, but he was a model and he later did the sports line for Versace. He worked for them. So they had been dating about 15, 16, 
17 years by the time when Versace passed. And there was a falling out that happened with the Versace family after he died. So when part of his last will and testament said that he was going to be receiving 50 million lira a month and that he could have access to their houses that they had together. Well, actually, those houses were owned by the company Versace, which his sister ran. So he did not get free reign. He had restricted rights to the houses. And it doesn't say exactly, but I think I read somewhere it ended up only being about $3 million. So, I mean, all that to say, like, he still... Had regular income. He still had regular income, but it definitely wasn't the life that Versace left for him. And I think, too... His family only put up with him, Antonio, because of their love for for Gianni. And then after he was gone, he was essentially cut off from that family. And that always just, like, when I watched it, I was like, that is so sad. I know. Like, I just, I don't know. When I I wonder why they had those feelings about him, like, I don't know, I'm... Yeah, there, there's actually, I, I was telling you earlier, but there's actually a quote by Donatella oh, yeah. where she this says, is like savage. Yeah. <laughs> so she says this in 1999, <clears throat> my relationship with Antonio is exactly as it was when Gianni was alive. I respected him as the boyfriend of my brother. I never liked him as a person. So the relationship stayed the same. Um, and he actually <laughs> passed in just last year at 63. Here's another person who would have had possibly Gianni for an entire life. Interesting because, of course, a lot of times the story is, the mur- I didn't know that Gianni Versace was murdered, too. When I first heard about this story, I had no idea. And then I didn't know that there was all these other men who had been killed on top of them. Some of them very successful, affluent men, but also some of them just sweet and enduring and like wonderful men who had families that loved them and deserved to live as much as anybody else. Yeah. So, crazy telling of Andrew Kanan and it doesn't end it doesn't have a, an ending but it it does end and justice in its way prevailed I like your thoughts on I appreciate in some ways that we didn't spend a fortune on defense of this guy like whatever defense any lawyer would try to put up to try to keep this guy out and heaven forbid if he had gotten off right like this in some ways is it's better. I hate that he got to go on his own terms, though. Yeah. I really fucking hate that. Like, after you put them through, you almost wonder if, like, at some point that was just his plan. Was just like, you know what? I've got this gun, so worst case scenario, I can just off myself really quickly. So I'm just going to cause as much destruction as I can in my path until it's my time to go. And that's just really, really fucked up. Yeah, I'll tell you another little rumor because there's all these little rumors, but they're in that Vanity Fair article by Maureen Orth. I might have said Martha Orth earlier, but it's Maureen Orth. She said that Kunanen and Versace had met at a party in San Francisco sometime in like 1990. I guess there was like eyewitnesses and that possibly there was some type of interaction. And I think that it was known, at least at the time, that Versace and his partner had um, not an open relationship, but had rendezvous, let's say. Sure. But the Versace family has like steadfast, just like the Miglin family, they have steadfastly denied that those two had ever met. And the police do say, we don't know why Versace was killed. Probably he was obsessed with Versace growing up. He was obsessed with this 
like status of, of rich and wealth and stuff like that. And he was right there in Miami and here was Versace's mansion. So it could have just been like the perfect storm. Um, and I don't know that why there would be any reason to say that they had never met if maybe they had briefly met in the 1990s. But it is this rumor that was circulating that possibly they had been in the same circle or the same bar in, in 1990. Maybe. Dear goodness. I, I don't just, even know if it really, I mean, it, it, I mean it doesn't matter. Like, I don't even know that it really for matters. Motive, right? Yeah. Like, I think that's it. Like, it, it's easier to to wrap it up nicely in a bow if there was some sort of motive for some of this deathless yeah. death, right? I will say one other interesting note that I found when I was researching this. Versace had this very elaborate funeral, as he should have. That's right. And he, Elton John was there. Naomi Campbell, Princess Diana was there, who okay. would die a month later Jeez. in this, of course, very famous car accident where she was killed in. He did have a legacy. And you could tell, like, when people like that showed up for your funeral. That is the twisted tale of Andrew Cunanan and, and really just the path of destruction that he left and all these people who are, you know, were left picking up the pieces afterwards. It's so, uh, I mean, this one definitely our most brutal, mm-hmm. like just awful, awful, awful deaths. Also just one of the most, like we've talked about, this one reminds me of like the Hollinsburg massacre. You could have convinced me early on with the first few killings that there was some sort of grudge or happenings that we don't know about that caused him to to do that kind of thing but then when it just turns random when it's literally you're just doing your job as a cemetery worker and all of a sudden someone walks up and shoots you that's it's the most terrifying kind of crime yeah it's terrifying like if it is mental illness like what what was it like we need to understand what causes something to progress to that point so we can prevent that yeah and, i do think oh, too that his drug addiction probably was very escalated oh, at this point had to play a p- to, huge piece in it especially if like it's meth and, yeah i mean especially once i heard that meth could be involved i was like oh okay N- not that it makes sense because it doesn't still make sense there's plenty of meth heads that don't go around murdering everywhere yeah, yeah but i but i do think that the growing you know, the fact that he had no money, he and he himself was only, I, I looked it up earlier, he was 28 years old. Like, he oh was young. Um, and so, I, yeah, I do think that it's just, it's a shame, honestly, like, all the way around. All the way around. Well, good job on telling an <laughs> awful tale, but also, like, again, captivating. I don't mean that in a positive way, because it's obviously horrific, but also just captivating. Yeah. All right, you guys, you know how to hit us up on our socials. Please recommend. Actually, my mom sent us a case. I'll have to show it to you for us to check out. But yeah, if you guys have any things that you would like to cover or hear about or us to dig into, we will do our very best and add it to our list. We will talk to you soon. Until next time, bitches. Bye. Bye. You made it to the end of the podcast. Thanks so much for hanging out with us. And I know that we've given a lot of our unsolicited feedback, but at the end of the day, it's also important that we remember to stay kind, 
Stay curious. But of course, stay nosy. Bitches. Bitches.